It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast. I'm Bill Corey, sports editor of the Providence Journal. I'm in downtown Providence with Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch. Bill, how are you? Bill, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, so it was quite the zany night of the ballpark, I guess, last night. You were there. Um, and um, boy, it started out with uh, Dave Dombrowski talking, and it ended with Xander Bogarts getting a, uh, a pitch on his hand that didn't look so good. So why don't you take us through sort of uh, the sequence of events on a uh, just a kind of a unique Tuesday night at Fenway. Uh, it was a very eventful day. Uh, you know, starting off with the fact that the Red Sox were playing the Phillies. It's a matchup of two division leaders. It's the type of game that we haven't really seen often enough, frankly. You know, it right. seems like the a last lot of month, bad teams, right? You know, like the last month, the Red Sox have been playing. You know, sort of the dregs of the Orioles a lot. Certain leagues, right? The <laughs> yeah. Orioles and uh, you know teams who who you won't necessarily see in October. Um, so it was a fun two-game series going in. Uh, obviously, the highlight of, of any July 31st will be the end of the non-waiver trade period. Um, so it was already going to be a busy day in terms of whether or not the Red Sox would make one last move, whether they would actually get uh, fill that perceived need for a bullpen arm that they had. Um, and what unfolded once the day started was just – it was a breakneck pace from – Chris Sale going on the DL to Dave Dombrowski addressing the media twice to the Red Sox and Phillies playing a second tight game in as many nights uh, to Xander Bogarts being hit on the hand by a 99 mile an hour fastball in the ninth inning uh, and after the game fearing that you know his hand could be broken and that his season could be derailed in similar fashion uh, to 2017 so no shortage of events last night at Fenway and Oh, look, the Yankees are coming to town right. for four games, so right. things are going to slow right down. Jeez. So uh, let's dig in first with Chris Sale. Uh, that seemed to come out of the blue, that uh, late afternoon announcement that he is uh, landing on the 10-day DL. And by all accounts, based on uh, what uh, what his reaction was, it's not something that he's thrilled about doing. But uh, you know, I think the Red Sox are probably uh, erring on the side of caution here, which they have done all season with Chris Sale. I, I think you know Alex Cora and his staff have put a track record in place here very early. Uh, I can't count how many times Alex has said, we're going to take care of these guys, we're going to protect them. And Chris Sale is obviously the primary asset in that way, considering the way that he has faded in his seasons, whether it be in late August, in September, into October. Uh, They've made a very concerted effort to reduce his innings, reduce his pitch count already this year. And Sale said this left shoulder inflammation, the the Red Sox were careful to call it mild left shoulder inflammation, was something that he could have pitched through. If this was a playoff start on Thursday, it's one that he could have made. Uh, And as you pointed out, he was quite ornery uh, when he addressed the media, not at us, but at the circumstances, I, I think the the takeaway quote for me, and I'm paraphrasing, is I don't like to see someone else go out there and do my job, which you know that is the mindset that Chris Sale takes to the mound. He's a battler, and I guarantee you he will not like sitting there for four nights while the Yankees are in town. Sure. Uh, I mean, that's that's the attitude that has endeared him, I think, to Red Sox, uh, Red Sox fans. You know, he's not one to make excuses. If he has a bad game, as rare as it is, he's there to say, hey, I didn't do well, and it's on me. 
and you know Sox fans I think Boston fans in general uh, appreciate something like that and uh, I mean he's been nothing but great when he's uh, when he's been pitching for the Red Sox has obviously faded down the stretch and the Red Sox are doing their best to uh, to avoid that uh, but yeah, so him going out uh, does have an effect on this immediate series here against the Yankees, which kicks off uh, tomorrow night. So what are the Sox going to do? Well, uh, they're going to scratch Chris Sale and they're going to start Brian Johnson, um, You know who has been very good as a starting pitcher. His last five outings, he's pitched to a 1.88 ERA. Uh, and there was a lot of speculation that Johnson could replace Drew Pomeranz in this rotation. That's how effective he's been. Now, obviously, you, you don't want Johnson in there at the expense of Chris Sale. But it's nice that the Red Sox have someone in reserve who they can put out there who can give them five or six innings and not blow up the bullpen ahead of what is a very important four games here against New York. Absolutely. Uh, So, you know, here we are on August 1st. We, I think, officially start the home stretch of the season. And uh, the Red Sox uh, started with... Uh, the team that is, uh, well, right now, five games behind them, but the Yankees are playing the Orioles as we speak. So New York is going to roll into town either five and a half games up, uh, I'm sorry, five and a half games back or four and a half games back. Um, and and just do the math on that. This this These are the very real outcomes of this weekend, okay? If the Yankees come in and let's say they beat the Orioles and they're four and a half back. Now, they were losing when we came in here to tape this, but let's say they beat the Orioles and they're four and a half back. They happen to sweep the Red Sox. It's a half game lead. It's yeah, it's neck and neck. The right. Red Sox happen to sweep the Yankees. It's an eight and a half game lead with forty nine games to play. At that point, the math comes in, and you look and you say, "This is going to be real hard for the Yankees to catch up." No, absolutely. And I was looking at the schedule here, and uh, as of right now, the Red Sox have ten games to go against the Yankees. Uh, seven, I believe, against Cleveland, I want to say. Correct. And uh, I think they still have three games against the Astros. And then they have, you know, a lot of uh, Toronto and Baltimore. So you're right. There isn't not only not enough games left, but the Red Sox are, are playing, you know, some, some teams that you would think they're going to sweep. Not maybe not sweep, but certainly win those series. And it's going to be hard for the Yankees to close a, uh, well, the Red Sox sweep. I mean, it's going to be like a 10-game or 9-game lead. It's going to be hard to close that gap. You know, and even if you win three out of four, let's say, you pick up two games, you're yeah. up six and a half with, with 49 to go or 50 to go. Um, and realistically, with the pace the Red Sox have played, we sit here now, they're 75 and 34. Um, if they were to play 500 baseball the rest of the way, they'll win 100 games. Right. You know, and, and you expect them to be better than that based on the standard that they've set. Sure. They're playing close, already closer to 700 baseball. Right. right. So you would think that if they're able to win three out of four against New York, even just hold their ground and, and split the series, the four-game series. They're in very good shape going forward. So uh, going forward, though, they are uh, a little bit nicked up here. Uh, one of the things that happened last night, obviously you mentioned it, was uh, Xander Bogarts getting that pitch on his, I want to say his right hand. Uh, yeah, the back of his right hand, and, probably on the back of his right pinky. Right, and it didn't look good when it happened. Uh, encouraging news was that the uh, x-rays did not show any kind of a break, but uh, this this is uh, sort of the same thing we saw last year with uh, with Bogarts who uh, who got hit and really wasn't the same player after that happened. No, that was a game in Tampa right around the same time of the year. Uh, it was in early July this time, uh, and Bogarts was hit by Jacob Faria on a fastball that came high and in, hit him in the base of the palm, sort of in the wrist area. Um, and you look at the rest of the season from there. 
Um, you know, Bogarts only had another 18 extra base hits. He had 30 before that. Mm. Um, this year, he's already pushing 50. Um, you know, he's in line for a, a huge season, a season where, as Alex Cora said, he, he's done a lot of damage at the plate in terms of extra base hits, driving in runs. Um, and you could see last night in the clubhouse, even though the x-rays were negative and they're calling it a, a right-hand contusion, uh, Xander Bogarts is generally one of the most outgoing guys in that clubhouse. Um, always a smile on his face, always joking with his teammates, joking with the media. Uh, he asked us if we have a day off today. Uh, and some of the folks said, no, we actually don't. And he was you know, genuinely surprised and, and good-natured about it. Uh, but Xander was very quiet while he was speaking uh, afterwards to the media. And he looked genuinely scared. Uh, and, and I can't say that I blame him. You take a 99-mile-an-hour fastball from Sir Anthony Dominguez – high and in, hits you in the hand. It's a similar thing to what happened last year and and really cost you the last 60, 70 games of the season. Um, And he said, you know, immediately, I flash back to that moment in Tampa, absolutely. Um, What am I going to do going forward from here? I can't unhit myself, Right was something that he said. And, you know, it's just a reminder that these guys are tough. They stand in there against fastballs up and in, breaking balls that start at their heads and break out over the plate for strikes. And we just expect them to do it. And I think in that moment, Bogarts was exposing a very human side to himself. And I I think it's going to be up to him to sort of, as they say, get right back on the bike, get back in the box as soon as he can, when he's feeling good, when the hand isn't sore anymore, and sort of get back right on that pace that he's set uh, you know, through 100 games here. Uh, and the Sox do have some other uh, folks uh, nicked up as well. Obviously, we're uh, still awaiting what's going to happen with Eduardo Rodriguez. Uh, it doesn't look like Dustin Pedroia is going to be joining the team anytime soon. Uh, and uh, what's up with Stephen Wright? He's got left knee inflammation. He's probably six months further along than Dustin Pedroia. They both had the same surgery, right. the, the cartilage restoration procedure in the left knee. Um, he's throwing, playing catch. He still hasn't thrown off a mound yet. But they are actually speaking in terms that Rodriguez and Wright could return this season. And Pedroia, by going to Arizona to work with his personal yeah, trainers, it doesn't look promising. is sort of out of sight, out of mind here. And I think the last move that the Red Sox made at the trade deadline uh, spoke to that, acquiring Ian Kinsler from the Angels. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and you know, it, it wasn't exactly a shocking move because they do want to bring some stability to that second base position, but I don't think it was the move that everybody was uh, expecting because, you know, we, we all talked about the need for uh, for a bullpen arm. But uh, yeah, so Ian Kinsler, I think, has been a, a, a so, you know, very solid player all his, all his career. And he comes into Boston now. I think he's batting something like uh, 240 for the year. But in July, he, he hit over 300. And I think he's going to be a good, solid pickup. He's sort of that same type of Droya player, you know, the quote unquote dirt dog guy, right? Yeah, sort of hard as nails, guys. And it, if you look over his career, and I I dipped into his numbers a little bit after they made the trade. This guy's been remarkably consistent for a long time. Uh, you know, led the majors in runs scored over the last twelve years. He scored about twelve hundred runs, which wow. you know speaks to the offenses he's played in in Texas and in Detroit, and you know early this year in Anaheim. Uh, been a very consistent twenty doubles guy double-digit home runs guy, but the, the main impact that the Red Sox were looking for here is on the defensive side of the sure. ball. Sure, solid defender. And, and you look at 
the metrics this year in terms of their second base performance between Brock Holt and Eduardo Nunez, the number that you go to is called defensive runs saved. And it's it measures a defender's impact in the field compared to an average performance, an average defender in terms of range, in terms of arm, in terms of balls that he will or will not get to. Eduardo Nunez and Brock Holt were minus 15 in defensive runs saved through July 31st. Hmm. Ian Kinsler was plus 10, which is the best among all American League second basemen and only second in the majors to Colton Wong of St. Louis, who is plus 15. So you look at that number and you get a reminder that even at 36, Ian Kinsler is going to do more than make the routine plays. He really solidifies the right side of the infield next to Mitch Moreland and is someone who is going to allow Nunez and Holt to sort of step back into what you would say is a more natural role for both of them, and that is as a utility guy. Uh, well, besides Kinsler, which uh, the deal was made a couple of days, I think, before the trade deadline, the Red Sox sort of, well, they did. They stood pat, and uh, Dave Dombrowski talked about that yesterday. Yeah, it was it was interesting to hear him you know, speak about the bullpen. Obviously, the bullpen was the glaring area, the narrative that everyone sort of took and ran with. You know, I don't trust Matt Barnes. I don't trust... Tyler Thornburg, you know, you hear all this on talk radio. That's fine. Most of it's unfounded because we haven't seen them pitch in the postseason. We have no idea what's going to happen at that point. We've barely seen Tyler Thornburg pitch at all. Um, But Dombrowski put pressure on three guys directly. Tyler Thornburg, Ryan Brazier, and Joe Kelly. Um, You know, three guys who combined, Thornburg and Brazier, have 19 major league appearances since 2016. Wow. Brazier was in Japan last year. Thornburg missed all last season due to right shoulder surgery. And Joe Kelly obviously has been lost since June 1st. Uh, Three straight scoreless appearances now after his scoreless inning uh, Tuesday night against the Phillies. Someone who they think they can get back on track. And now someone who Dombrowski clearly is banking that they can get back on track because not making a move really puts some serious pressure on the guys who are going to be out there in short relief. Well, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with Thornburg. I, I was at the game Friday night, and he, um, he came in in the 10th. And that was the game that, that Kimbrell blew in the, uh, in the 9th. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the Red Sox offense answered so quickly. Devers hits a home run in the bottom of the 9th to tie it, leadoff batter. And then in the bottom of the 10th, I want to say, Correct. Betts, uh, Betts wins it, leadoff home run. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it it was worth our while to, to, to stay. Quite but the game to catch. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good one. But uh, Thornburg, um, you know, had a very good, solid, scoreless 10th inning. And uh, they used him again, I want to say Monday, and threw another scoreless inning. So, you know, he may still proved to be a, uh, a a good trade. He hasn't been so far, uh, tra- losing Travis Shaw a few years ago for him. But uh, you're right, we we just haven't seen him, and it's it's uh, it, that that story has yet to be written. No, and you forget about how good he was in 2016 with Milwaukee, and, and you just hope that he can get somewhere close to that. 67 games, 67 innings. 38 hits allowed and 90 strikeouts, which yeah. you know is the sort of wipeout stuff that you would feel very comfortable putting into the seventh inning ahead of Matt Barnes and ahead of Craig Kimberlin and saying, here you go, Tyler, this is going to be your inning. Uh, you know, And you could shorten the game effectively in that way. Um, Heath Henry has settled into that role of sort of the, the traffic cop out there, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. Someone who comes in with men on base, I think he's stranded his last 18 base runners. Yeah, he's been really solid for, for that kind of middle relief role for him. Ha- has been very 
very good in that role, but isn't someone who can carry into multiple innings very well. He's done that 13 times this year, and he's given up runs in, in I think it's six or seven of them. Mm. Uh, and most of those were done in the second inning of work. So, you know, that speaks to if he can finish the sixth, that's fine. He takes over for a starter. Someone like Eduardo Rodriguez, we'll, we'll pick on him because he makes, he tends to make short starts. Right. <laughs> He'll give you five and a third quality innings, but it's only five and a third. You bring Hembry in with a man on, he gets through the sixth. You don't want to send him back out for the seventh. So now what do you do? Is it Thornburg? Is it Brazier? Is it Kelly ahead of Barnes and Kimbrell? And I think that's what Dombrowski was getting at. Uh, he made some interesting comments in terms of the trade market. Said that the Red Sox were in preliminarily on a lot of players, but they weren't necessarily prepared to part with some of the players that they have left in their farm system. They didn't necessarily like the price that was quoted to them for some of these guys. And, you know, also he feels the need to replenish the farm system and, and not trade it all away. And that's something that people have been critical of him for. This deadline, I don't think they really touched any of their top prospects in terms of giving up Jalen Beeks, Ty Buttry, Williams Jerez. Um, you know, none of those guys are, are really... Uh, Santiago Espinal went in the Steve Pierce deal. None of those guys were really highly regarded. He didn't trade away Michael Chavis or Jay Groom or, you know, Travis Lakins or Tanner Houck. He, he was able to preserve those guys and maybe take them into 2019, 2020 and see what happens. Uh, well, while the Red Sox did not do a whole lot uh, there... Um counterparts in the American League East uh, were busy, uh, and I would say the, the biggest uh, deal in the division that caught my attention anyway was the Tampa Bay Rays sending Chris Archer to the Pittsburgh Pirates. But uh, if you had any doubts that the uh, that the American League East is a two-team race, I don't know why you would, but if you had any doubts, then uh, the last day or two proved that it certainly is because just about every other team just kind of unloaded. Yeah, the bottom three teams sold. Uh, obviously, Archer, for me, was the headliner. Um, um, mainly for me, not only because of his performance, but the contract is so team-friendly. Mm. It, it's surprising to see Tampa move someone like Chris Archer, who's under so much control. He signed through 2019. He has a $9 million club option for 2020. Still w- young, really. With, right. with a $1.75 million buyout. No real expense there. Yep. He has an $11 million club option for 2021 with a $250,000 buyout. <laughs> so no real big cost problem there either. And to see the emergence of Blake Snell this year in Tampa Bay, the left-hander, the all-star, you could have pictured Archer and Snell going forward for the next three or four years and the Rays trying to build around them. So that's why, for me, mainly the Archer trade was so surprising. Um, In terms of competitiveness, Dombrowski, I think, made a a good point in his comments yesterday. The American League teams were able to decide whether or not they wanted to be sellers much earlier because the playoff teams have separated themselves by so much. The Red Sox, the Yankees, the Indians are going to run away with the AL Central. And the West is a three-team race between the Astros, who are still the favorites to win that division, and Seattle and Oakland, who are both battling for that second wild card. Uh, But everyone else, you look at Tampa Bay. I looked up at the standings on the left field wall at Fenway before the start of Monday's game. Tampa was 500, and they were 21 games out. Yeah, I know, you're division. right. They're not close. There's very little drama across the American League, so that, that that is a good point. You pretty much know where you are on, on July 31st. You know, and then you look at the other teams in the AL East. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Baltimore did exactly what I would have done. 
if I was Baltimore. I, I think Dan Duquette approached this the right way. He traded everything that wasn't nailed down. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, starting you up. Yeah. Because realistically, and, and uh, Nick Cafardo, the, the great Boston Globe uh, baseball writer, made this point to me the other night, and I think he's right. The Red Sox are sort of in the middle of a window here where they're going to be good for at least two or three years. Mm-hmm. The Yankees are bringing up young talent and have money to spend in the next two or three off seasons, they're going to be very good. If you're Baltimore, Toronto, Tampa, how are you going to compete? Right. It's going to be very difficult. Now, Tampa, with Archer and Snell, I think had two definite assets. But if you're Baltimore, you're not close. You know, you're 40-odd games out in first place. Uh, so you look at what they did, dealing off Manny Machado, Brad Brock, Kevin Gosman, the right-handed starting pitcher, Jonathan Scope, the second baseman, Darren O'Day, like Brock, another bullpen piece. They just stripped down everything and, and tried to start over. And I think if you're Baltimore, that's going to be a multi-step process in terms of not only developing talent for your major league roster, but you need to change how you acquire talent as well. They've been you know, disgustingly inactive in the international signing pool. That's something that the Yankees have played well in the Red Sox too. Um, you know, getting Devers and, and Xander Bogarts most notably. Um, so I look at I look at Baltimore and I think they did exactly. Exactly what they should have done. Uh, Toronto pretty much traded their whole bullpen. Um, you know, Aaron Loop went to the Phillies. John Axford went to the Dodgers. Sung Wan Oh was sent out. And then for me, Toronto made the most controversial trade of the deadline, sending Roberto Ozuna to the Astros. Mm. Uh, I'm sure you know you, Bill, as the father of two daughters, might have some thoughts about you know what the Astros did there, acquiring someone like Ozuna who stands accused of domestic battery here in Toronto and whose case still isn't resolved. No, it is. It's it's uh, it, it's a unfortunate thing that um, you know. I think that um, when it comes to professional sports, usually not always. Usually, performance on the field trumps everything else. Uh, you know, there are some uh, there are some exceptions to that. We've seen uh, you know some Patriots players uh, they've cut ties with because of that, and but we've seen other Patriots players being called uh, being uh, brought on who've had uh, similar issues. Uh, but you know. It's uh, unfortunately, it's it's the business that uh, that they're in. Uh, they they tend to uh, stick to how good these guys are, what the numbers are, and uh, you know if there's some PR f- um, sort of uh, rough patch that they they sort of you know they figure out a way to get through it. You know, and and what you're alluding to there, obviously, the Astros have a, a huge hole in their bullpen. Ken Giles is not a good closer. He was sent to AAA mm-hmm. very early this season. Roberto Osuna is an elite closer and right. a young one and, and someone who is signed into the 2020s, uh, you know, and someone who can carry Houston forward at the back end. But the, the price that you pay off the field in terms of what you've sacrificed, your integrity as an organization. Jeff Luno, the, the Astros GM, put out a statement uh, yesterday saying that for players in his organization there's a zero tolerance policy and you know they're confident that Roberto Osuna will adhere to that and you know will will follow that and he'll find good mentors in Houston's organization so it doesn't apply to him while he's playing for Toronto but it yeah, will while I mean, he's it's, playing for Houston yeah it's the whole you know we believe we'll straighten him out we have a good locker room kind of mentality and, you know sometimes it works and uh, you know many times it doesn't uh, so so we'll see moving forward but you know i never i never allow myself to think that um you know major league or professional sports teams don't make decisions based on 
talent and how they think these players are going to help the team first. That's the first thing. Sure, and and you know we don't mean to be I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it. It, it, it was just it was a very strange deal considering that Houston sort of has this core of you know likable guys whether it be Jose Altuve or George Springer or Carlos Correa uh, guys who do things quote unquote the right way mm. um, obviously Yuli Gurriel had his problems in the World Series last year uh, you know with some racist gestures right. uh, directed toward you Darvish and I'm assuming the Astros dealt with that uh, but if you'd like to compound Osuna's addition with Gurriel's behavior you could say that this is two incidents now in two years that Houston is going to take responsibility for and ostensibly they're doing so because the players involved are very talented right right uh, so uh, before we uh, sign off here, I, I just want to take a quick look back here on this on this current homestand while the Red Sox have this off day on Wednesday night. They went four and two. We talked about last week. You know, if if they can go four and two, they'd be uh, sort of right where you want them to be. Uh, they had a couple of nice walk off wins in that stretch. Uh, you know, losing to the Phillies is there's no shame in that. They're a solid ball club. No, and they and they ran into the Phillies' two best pitchers in, right. in Aaron Nola and Jake Arrieta, and, and they caught a outings from both of them. They were very good. Absolutely, yeah, uh, tight games, and uh, uh, but uh, still they came out of it four and two. They uh, open up this series with the Yankees, as we said. Either uh, they're going to be either four and a half or five five and a half games up. Uh, and it's going to be a very interesting and I think fun final two weeks of the se- uh, final two months of the season, Bill. Yeah, and here are uh, the pitching matchups. If if you'd like to delve into these a little bit, uh, Thursday Brian Johnson against CC Sabathia, who's been really tough on the Red Sox, particularly over the last two years. Right. Um, you know, Friday Rick Porcello against Luis Severino, who pitched very well in that last series uh, against Boston in New York, but who over his last four starts has an eight eight four. ERA uh, and it's really been hit hard. Thirty three hits in nineteen. Yeah, you, you know, it makes you wonder. And and uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of uh, I kind of watch Severino a little closely because he's on my fantasy baseball oh, team. Oh, very good. But uh, you were you were happy until July first. I was. Yeah, and so it makes you wonder: is he hurt or did he? Has he? Has he gotten inside of his own head? Because he was he was really solid, and then it's just kind of slowly unraveled. You know, he was another guy who, like Sale, he faded down the stretch last yeah. year and. You know, you look and it's August 1st. This is awful early for this to be happening to him. Sure. Um, but the first thing you wonder, obviously, is, is he carrying an injury that we don't know about? The second thing I wonder about sometimes about these guys, though, is if you come out of the All-Star break and you've had three or four days off and teams have three or four days to study video, have they picked up something? No, there? maybe. There's some extra time to sort of do some, uh, do some video review, right? You know, because his stuff is unbelievable. You're talking a high 90s fastball, a wipeout slider. Um, very, very difficult to hit. The type of stuff that he could probably tell you what's coming, and, and it's still not a guarantee that you would hit it. But whenever you see a guy who's that good get hit this hard, naturally you wonder to those two things. Is he hurt? Or is he tipping his pitches? And you know the way he's been hit his last four outings, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it's either or. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so he so he goes on he goes Friday night. Friday night against Porcello. Yep. Uh, Saturday, Nathan Evaldi against Jay Hap. Uh, Hap obviously threw a very good game against Boston mm-hmm. with Toronto earlier in the year. Last time he wasn't Not so, so lucky. much. No. Uh, Mookie Betts caught him on the wrong end of a thirteen pitch at bat and hit right. a grand slam. Right. Uh, Bill, I wonder what you thought of Evaldi's Red Sox debut. He he was outstanding on Sunday. I 
I thought he was. I thought he was great. You know, I think I think he said the right things. You know, you never know when somebody comes in from a uh, from a different organization. Although the, although Evaldi has played uh, for the Yankees, so he sort of has been on the big stage before. Yes. Uh, you know, and I think Evaldi um, can really play a major role for this team um, going down the stretch. Again, we don't know what the deal is with with Erod. Who knows what's going to happen with David Price, but it is nice to know that there may be somebody else who can step in and, and give you some quality starts and, and you know, maybe work his way into the playoff rotate. I mean, it's early, but he might, you know, he might. Yeah, and the, the other the other side of Vivaldi uh, and Eduardo Rodriguez, for that matter, and this is my this has been my conspiracy theory all along, is that one of those two guys is going to slide into this bullpen eventually. Right, right. Those are the two real power arms at the back end of the rotation, uh, and if you saw one or both of them uh, go into the bullpen, certainly going to lengthen the list of guys that you can use. Yeah, I think there. I think that makes all the sense in the world, especially with um, Eduardo Rodriguez, because we don't know when he's going to quite come back, and there may not be enough time for him to go out and build up his arm strength to the point where a starting pitcher uh, needs to be, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe he goes in and becomes that lefty, that lefty arm out of the bullpen because he's got fantastic stuff. And if you just need to harness it for an inning or two, that that could be a real uh, dangerous weapon. The last guy, the real super dark horse bullpen contender. <laughs> for the Red Sox in the postseason starts on Sunday and that's David Price right. against Masahiro Tanaka on Sunday Night Baseball the last time David Price started against the Yankees on Sunday Night Baseball we saw what happened five home runs later in the Bronx uh, David Price came unglued uh, in front of a national audience and you can't help but wonder Bill not only can he get it done in a big spot not only can he get it done against the Yankees but as he may have proved in 17 down the stretch and, and into the playoffs, is the bullpen in a high leverage role a better spot for him than being a starter? Yeah, that, that's a that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I'm not 100% sold he's actually going to make that start <laughs> considering his track record. Oh, I, I mean, what a terribly cynical but, uh, thing to say. But we'll see. No, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, know, least, I'm, I'm saying it's, I'm time. saying there's an 80% chance he's going to make the start. At least last time he went out there and took his took his medicine. Right. You know, well, I mean, okay. he did and that. I'm, but uh, yeah, there'll be a lot of eyes on that start. And think about it, Bill. Um, you know, that could be um, that could really be an important game, depending on where the series stands at that point, right? If either team is up three games to nothing, that game becomes huge. Well, as we talked about at the start of the podcast, the the swings that are capable in a four game series are, are extreme. Sure, um, you know, and especially when you talk about two teams who are four or five games apart in the standings. Uh, you know, just the either end of that spectrum, you consider the Red Sox could be nine games up or a game up. I, I mean, that's just... Uh, this late in the season, yeah, just changes everything. Absolutely, changes this, everything. This could set this really could set the course for the for the remainder uh, remainder of the year. I mean, if if it's a sweep by either team, they are uh, th- those are two extreme in, uh, outcomes. And uh, you know, if the Yankees sweep, we're neck and neck, right? The Red Sox are neck and neck with them. And if the Red Sox again, we'll say it, uh, you know, if the Red Sox sweep, which I don't think they will, but if they do, you know, you've got a nice comfortable lead going into the final. Uh, final two months so uh, anyway we will be watching closely you will be at the games uh, beginning tomorrow night and uh, I think with that we will wrap up this edition of Twin Bills thanks Bill thank you Bill